Canucks Central Wednesday. It's Dan Richo, Satyar Shah. We're in the Kintec studio. This hour of Canucks Central is brought to you by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned BC company helping local business since 1892. Canucks uh, will get back to it tomorrow against Tampa Bay, but it is another loss on the cards for the Vancouver Canucks after yesterday sat a game that was... uh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's about as hilarious as you could imagine a Canucks game being in the context of this season. Another multi-goal blown lead, gifted a multi-goal lead, a 3-0 lead by the poor play of Casey DeSmith, and then immediately giving it back before the end of the first period. It's just uh, this team and their, uh, well, inability to defend knows no bounds. You know, it, we were discussing this on the postgame show with Bick, and my initial take was this should have been like a 7-2, 7-3 win for Pittsburgh, considering how much Vancouver gave up. And, you know, Bick made a good point about, you know, the Canucks did score, and some of the schools you should give them a lot of credit for, even though Casey DeSmith struggled. But when you go back and watch a lot of that game, the the way the Canucks were permitting chances and pressure in their own zone for the entirety of that game really is a miracle <laughs> that they yeah. had a three, nothing lead. And the fact that he only lost by one goal. Yeah. And uh, we're going to get into some of those deeper conversations about the types of chances, the amount of chances the Canucks are giving up right now and just how worrisome it is for the way they are playing, especially in the context of, you know, some of the things we talked about on yesterday's show regarding the coach and you know how this team is responding right now, uh, all of it does not paint a pretty picture. But you know, there's a lot being said about the Canucks right now, Sat. And mm-hmm. uh, you're hearing from all the insiders what they think is going on with Vancouver and what's going to happen with Horvat. And, and we've talked about all these things as well. But the, the thing I'm most perplexed by at times is this idea that we don't know which direction this front office is heading for the rest of the season that I don't think is much of a mystery they are planning for losses for the remainder of the season I would imagine they are planning to um, take away some of the talent that is here and start building a future with some of the current core pieces they have in place, but also trying to find that ever-escaping need for salary cap flexibility. That, to me, it's obvious that's the goal for this team, and I've felt this way now for a little while. I, I, I don't. For me, there's not much mystery there on which way this front office wants to go for the remainder of this season. See, so... I agree with you that it's clear the organization has a plan that they want to clear cap space, they want to get younger assets, and they want to put themselves in a position to be better in a couple of years. Where I'm not sure it's been fully determined is what's ultimately going to happen with, you know, well, I think with Luke Shen, it's becoming very clear that he'll more than likely get traded and it'll circle back in the offseason. But on Bo, are you sure you're trading him? Have you made that decision truly and the Kuzmenko one? Because... 
I think they want to keep Kuzmenko probably far more than they want to keep Bo at this stage in terms of also trying to make that happen. So I do think those two things remain to some degree undetermined. And as long as those two things are undetermined, I think it's going to be hard for some fans if the Canucks actually sign Bo and they sign Kuzmenko. And it's like, yeah, well, we're going to, uh, we're going to try to clear the cap space in the offseason. And if that happens... Even though your plan may not be too dissimilar from what you're trying to accomplish, what is the action showing? It's showing that you're yet again doubling or tripling down on what's going to be happening. But I agree with you that it's clear where they want to go. The question with at least two of those key players, which direction do they ultimately go? That's, um, for now, still a mystery. Uh, yeah. I, you know, we've talked about this and the other day on the show you put the percentage at uh, Bo staying 60-40 that he leaves 40% that he stays with the Vancouver Canucks it's awfully hard to see how this team significantly changes if they bring back both Bo Horvat and Andre Kuzmenko in that situation the front office is essentially saying to you we think getting the coach in place that we truly believe in is ultimately going to get this team playing at a level that we haven't yet seen this core group play at. That's because otherwise you're, you're unable to materially change the team if you commit to Bo Horvat and Andre Kuzmenko at the numbers we expect them to get. Yeah, I mean, so there is, we, we always talk about this, right? There are worlds in, in which you can keep Bo and you can do other things. What that does force you into though is that you're it's not as aggressive of a rebuild right like if you, if you're holding on to Demko Hughes and Pedersen and you know you you're gonna have um JT Miller here anyways with this contract it seems mm -hmm. like one way or another so let, let's just shelve the discussion around JT but let's just assume that he's going to be here so if you look at those four players being here as the actual players in, in the MBK and you add say Kuzmenko to the mix you're like okay well we know we're trading Bo, we're doing these other things. But if you're not trading Bo, sure, you can maybe buy out OEL if, if you want to be that aggressive. Sure, you can move Myers if you retain and you try to do some other things, some buyouts to, to clear up enough money. But you're not getting a young, quality asset back in return to help you expedite that process. And all you're looking to do is clear money any way you can to bring other players on. So it's a far different type of retool. That becomes more of a of a retool on the fly to me than a rebuild. Because a rebuild to me, it's actually trading one or two key players off your roster that bring you value back. Because yes, cap space matters. But where are the Canucks going to find that next young center we were talking about? Where are you going to find that defenseman? And as much as Connor Bedard, if you're lucky enough to win the lottery, that's going to solve one thing for you. But they still need more on the back end as well. And as time goes on, how do you add all those pieces? And I just don't know how you're going to be able to add enough difference-making pieces that take you to where you need to go if you're bringing these guys back. It's it's why um, I, I thought you know trading Miller would have been uh, part of the plan, but obviously it was not. Um, we talked about that when it was made and that decision and all those things that, you know, it does and, and how it changes some of the future, the way Horvat's played, you know, his number is getting to a place that's very uncomfortable. You wonder if he does end up getting the, you know, the, the hurdle contract, right. Um, or, or something like that. And that's very expensive for the Canucks. Uh, Nate from Comox, as he says on the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox, how can you expect this to really change if we're talking about Bo Horvat as a 60-40% chance of still being a Vancouver Canuck? Uh, well, the 40% is the chance that he leaves. So still um, 
that's the basis we're working off of. And I just... Yeah, I'd say 60% chance he gets traded yeah. and 40% chance he stays. And that's my opinion. And like I've said, there are others in this market who are locked into the Canucks who think it's less likely than that. They kind of put it at, say, 80% that he's gone. Again, based on last year and how I feel about it, this is my opinion, an informed opinion to some extent, but how I kind of feel about the situation, I do think there's a 40% chance that if I want to be more pessimistic, maybe 30 if you want to go down, that he stays, which I think is sizable, but I do think it's more likely at this stage that he gets traded, whereas at this stage last year, what did I keep saying about JT? It's 50-50. You know, like it's, it's really 50-50 whether he stays or not. I think there's a real possibility he stays. They want to keep him. It doesn't seem to be quite as convincing in terms of their desire, or at least from what I can gather with Bo Horvat. The reason I am of the mind that, you know, this team and this front office is seeing what's on the ice and deciding, you know, this season is is already gone and it's time to start looking ahead for next season Number one, uh, Jim Rutherford told us that a few months ago Mm -hmm. when the team was really going through it. And so I I can't see any reason why he would think otherwise, given what this team has shown through the course of this year. But even to bring that back further, Sat, did the Canucks front office not see this as part of the range of outcomes for this season? Mm -hmm. I believe they did see this as part of the range of outcomes. It was not the ideal one. It's not the one that they expected because given the roster they fielded, given the Mm -hmm. roster that they added to in the summer with Mikheyev and others, Kuzmenko as well, I do believe they expected to at least be competing for a playoff spot, maybe even be in the playoffs. But given everything they said about this team and where the flaws were, I don't imagine that they saw this as not part of the range of outcomes where they would end up drafting in the lottery and potentially among the lesser lights of the NHL. Not the expected, but part of the range of outcomes for this team. Think about they did not give Boudreaux an extension. They Mm -hmm. essentially said, show us you can do more with this team before we truly believe in you. And part of that was... They also knew that it was going to be difficult to move on from some of the cap commitments that had been committed already by the previous regime. They always viewed this as a multi-year build toward contention, not a one-year overnight thing. That is evident from the first interviews they did all the way up to the ones we've seen them do most recently. Yes, they added Mikheyev and they gave Miller the new deal, but they see those players as part of a winning group in the two- to four-year build as much as they see them as part of the group now. That's maybe the biggest miscalculation for me about what this front office has done. However, that's how they see it. We can disagree with it, and it's definitely a part of their resume and something they need to be judged on, especially when they get to that two- to four-year term of them being the drivers of this ship. Other than that, anything they've added is potential help for the short and medium term to this team. They came into this year with the potential to contend for a playoff spot, but knowing that there was potential for this to be a tank season as well. The goal was never to rebuild. That's still not going to happen, but tanking this season is very much the plan forward for now. I just see this as it's not a hard set sort of rebuild, which is maybe what's more common and what we've seen other teams do, but... They're trying to juggle a few balls at once. 
which is very difficult and maybe not the right way to do it, but that's the way I view what this front office is trying to do with this Canucks team right now. So I, I do agree that there's always a plan or there's there was a there was a a feeling that this type of outcome was possible, but I don't think to this degree. Like I don't think they believed it was going to be this bad. I thought, okay, maybe we get a, you know we get a top 12, 13 pick or something along those lines, or a better pick than last season. But I don't know if they thought it was going to be this bad. But I do believe they were fine with that happening. But if you were okay with this be this type of season, this type of outcome being within the range, and you're being comfortable with that, then should you have used the opportunity when you had to move money like Garland and Besser? Because yeah. you could have moved Besser, and we talked about it makes sense to keep him because you're not getting value for return. So sign him to a bridge contract. He plays better, hopefully. You trade him at a high. You maximize the value. It's a it's a decent bet to make, right? But if you actually are feeling like it's going to be this bad this season, why risk the value getting even more depressed? And let's say a guy like Connor Garland. Was there more of a market for you to do something this offseason that doesn't exist today, potentially? And we don't know. We can't sit here with certainty to say we know it leads you to believe that potentially that's the case. So where are you now with those players, right? Sure, you're getting the high draft pick, but how much of that calculation now would you do differently in hindsight? Because I don't think they would do the JT Miller contract differently, but if you knew that this season was going to be different, would you have made some different decisions on those players? Was there somebody else on the roster perhaps that you kind of could have maybe done something with that you held on to and said, hey, we'll see how this kind of unfolds as the season goes on. That, I think, is a fair question. We don't really know the answers to it necessarily. Yeah. But if you were this, will if you were this, if you were convinced that this was really possible, then I think you should have done more to get some of this, these contracts off the books before you hit the pitfall, pitfalls you hit this season. Now, you might get a high draft pick. You can still sell players off, and ultimately that might be the best thing that you can do. But I don't think it's been a seamless – it hasn't been seamless for them in terms of their decision-making to get to this point. I, I can't disagree with you there. I can't. Um, the, the Garland one is super interesting because you know we know there was interest from other teams around the deadline last year and maybe even in the summer as well. But what were the offers coming back? Um, mm-hmm. Was it having to take a contract back and maybe get a middling draft pick? Um, is that really that enticing for a player who was a top 35 on five scorer last year in the NHL? I, I feel like no. Uh, as for Besser, and we talked about it a ton in the lead up to him getting the extension, you know, his seven and a half million dollar qualifying offer was a very difficult hurdle to navigate for this team and really impacted his potential value on the trade market as well. That was a big part of the issue with those two specific players, Pearson and Myers, always going to be players that became more valuable and potentially players that were easier to move, not just easier to move, but maybe you collect an asset for them once they get to the expiring years of their contract, rather than players like right now, currently that still have term on their deal. So those things, not that I want to make excuses for this front office because this season is a failure. They still ultimately expected it to at least contend for a playoff spot. That is, it, it's still something we can't really deny knowing that Myers and Pearson were going to be difficult to move with two years left on their respective deals. So I, I get all that, but now the big decisions are Horvat and certainly Kuzmenko sat and we're, we're seeing the insiders talk about it more and more. We talked about it a lot yesterday and have with, with Bo Horvat that, you know, it's, 
becoming clear there is a lineup of teams looking at Bo Horvat as a potential add for the playoff run and maybe somebody they can add to their core for the future moving forward. But the interesting one is Kuzmenko, I feel, mm-hmm. because the numbers are starting to come out. Could it be more than $6 million a year? And could there be as much interest in Kuzmenko as there is on the trade market right now for Bo Horvat? Yeah, and you know, you know, LeBron's been writing about it. I know Dreger has been on Insider Trading, and you know, he's been talking about these sort of things as well. So we know it's out there, right? And we know that, like I mentioned earlier this week, we're starting to get to a point now where more and more teams are are. It's becoming clear there are more and more teams interested. Uh, in Bull Horvat, and that's being expressed one way or another, and people are trying to find out or finding out about it, right? And especially here on the Kuzmenko front, and where I, what I find interesting is, and we talked about it with um, Earth yesterday about the possibility of a bridge deal that's been kind of discussed here, and it, it's interesting that LeBron mentioned $6 million per season and over, say, three years for Kuzmenko. What is that total? $18 million. What have we What have we been talking about? Total money here for Andre Kuzmenko. Something along the lines of what Mikheyev got. Mikheyev got about $19 million to sign a four-year contract. Now, maybe he wants that money over a three-year contract, right? Now, if you're looking at a four-year contract worth or three-year contract worth $18 million, would you be looking at a four-year contract instead at $22 million, right? So could you bring that AAV down to five something or one extra year? So I think what you're hearing, it sounds like, you know, jarring on, on Kuzmenko. It's six million per year. But again, we keep talking about total money for a reason because that's the big determining factor. So if he's looking at a payday around 18 million for three years, your ballpark to get a deal done over three to four years is anywhere from 16 to 22 million. Right, and what are we even talking about? That's the kind of range here for an Andre Kuzmenko contract. So I don't think what the six million AAV that getting out is going to be a deterrent to a contract getting done with the Canucks. Uh, term can always be the added value to get that AAV a little bit down, which is probably what the Canucks would like in order to maintain some level of cap flexibility uh, as they move forward with Andre Kuzmenko. I mean. The, the, the trouble is, you know, it, it's hard to determine Kuzmenko's value on the trade market, Sat, like truly. But if you can get a premium asset for him, um, it, it's almost tough to turn down, I, I would say. Right? It, it, in the idea of a bigger term rebuild and the idea of this being more of a two to four year sort of build. Mm-hmm. And the lack of assets that this team has, really the biggest thing is the lack of young assets that this team has. Anywhere you can potentially add a big-time asset, I think it has to be looked at. And I wonder what that value is for Kuzmenko on the trade front, but it's really hard to determine that given the way wingers have generally been valued around the league over the last year and a bit. Well, one thing that we've also been talking a lot about and that's going to be key here, or at least is a big determining factor in the interest around Kuzmenko, is the fact that he's on an entry-level contract for a capped-out National Hockey League. Mm. That's huge. You're talking about it's going to cost the team like hundred grand to yeah. acquire him at the deadline, two hundred grand or something on the cap, which is completely insignificant. A capped-out team can figure out a way to even get that contract on. So what that does, it opens up a complete 
like it opens up everybody as a suitor potentially at the deadline because you can try to find a way to make this happen most likely if you really want it to. So I think that's a big part of it as well. And there's intrigue with his offensive play. I do question ultimately what that upside is. Like I think what we're talking about here is a first round pick and a, some sort of a prospect. I don't think it's a next level type of prospect. But again, for Bo Horvat, we've been asking the question, and I do think Bo has value has been higher than JT Miller's value, but is it high enough for you to get that one difference-making piece? Because if we're talking about Bo Horvat's market being a first-round pick, maybe another draft pick, and a good prospect but not a great prospect, then it's not too dissimilar from what you would get for Kuzmenko, right? A, a first-round pick and some sort of a prospect. So I think if you look at it through that lens, you can understand why the values are similar unless somebody steps up and gives you what you're really looking for for Bull Horvat, and that's what where the Canucks are at. One final thing on this, and we're going to get to Woodley, but this team has performed at a high level offensively this year. <laughs> Certainly some players have performed at a high level offensively this year. But part of that is, and we talked to Yannick about this a lot, they don't play defense. Mm-hmm. And how much of that is inflating some of the offensive numbers we're seeing where let's say Bo does go to a contender who tries to lock it down a little bit more, and all of a sudden he's scoring at a 25-goal-ish pace rather than the 50-goal pace that he's currently on because of a different system he's playing in with less chances to take offensively. You're not always chasing games and chasing offense because your defense is so poor. Like, Are these numbers sustainable if these players were to go to a contending team? Well, I, I think a lot of their offense isn't. I think, well, not a lot of it. I, I think a not an insignificant amount of it, I think, would go down when you play a different style of game. And we've been talking about this a lot this season, too, like how, how this team chases a lot of points and goals and the way games have unfolded them trailing and trying to come back and, you know, throwing caution, throwing caution to the wind to get points. And on good teams, you don't have to play desperate hockey like that to try to come back all the time. So it changes. You have a t- talented team and they can score, but they don't really play all that well as a two-way game. So I do think that's a that's a part of it here. And I know Ryan texted and says uh, he doesn't think Kuzmenko would want to do more than two to three years because, hey, he might be able to hit a massive contract after that if he has a few good years. And that's true, and that's something that he has to calculate. But the other part of it is the type of team you're playing on, the type of production you have this year, how much of that is going to bounce back next year? And if you have a couple of years where you have a couple of good years, but it's not quite at that level, then why take the risk anyways? And I think that's the other part of the calculus. Even for teams out there that are looking to um, sign these types of players is how much of this is repeatable and that's going to affect the market on their contracts. I think at the trade front, it's different. Like I think it's their standard trade deadline prices you pay for the most sought after pieces, but paying those players you acquire the money they're looking for is a completely different discussion. And I do think there would be some hesitation to give players on the Canucks from other teams the money they're looking for based on the production we've seen from them this year because a lot of it is inflated. And I would imagine, you know, a player like Kuzmenko, uh, he's going to have options even at 31, 32. You know, so if you can lock in 20 to $25 million now, uh, might be the uh, most prudent way to go forward. But uh, who am I uh, to, to decide that? Uh, all right, we're going to get to Kevin Woodley, Dan Richo, Satyar Shaw coming up here. Uh, Woodley on uh, the Canucks defense in Pittsburgh last night and um, – the blocking shots thing, or lack of blocking shots, especially uh, Oliver Ekman Larson last night. That's next on Canuck Central.
Canuck Central in the Kintec studio. Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider. Supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintec.net. Um, did get and have gotten a lot of questions like this at the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Am I the only one that is wildly concerned about the JR retirement talk? Jim Rutherford, of course. Guy comes in and commits money to Miller, Brock, Mikheyev, and then plans on dipping when it gets too hard to make the team better? Question mark. Um, it's an interesting comment. I can see why a lot of people read those quotes that way, Sat, from the Pittsburgh Tribune, mm-hmm. but... Um, I'm not so sure uh, that's exactly how they should be read. I mean, it, it's clear he's he's kind of pandering to the uh, Pittsburgh beat writers, too, and talking about his time in Pittsburgh and talking about... I mean, we're talking about a guy at that time in his late 60s. The man's in his 70s. Of course, he's, he's thought about retirement yeah. at some stage. I mean, I mean, that's kind of the age you probably would be thinking about retirement and considering it and everything. And and he said, had you won, there was obviously one way to go out that way. But I didn't take it as he's a guy who's right now contemplating retirement. I think he was trying to say something nice and introspective and, and, and kind of important about his time in Pittsburgh when talking to somebody from Pittsburgh. That's the way I read it, not to sit here and defend him. And asking around, uh, let's just say that he has no plans of retiring. And if you were to ask him, I'm sure he, he would be... It would be a kind of a blistering response to whether he wants to retire or not. But what do we also say when he got hired? He's not a long-term bet. The man's yeah. in his 70s. He's probably going to be here for two to three years, probably in that range, and then hand it off to somebody else, and hopefully they build a foundation, a strong management team that can take this team to the level that it needs to get to. That was always the plan. So I think that still remains remains the plan. Yeah, I think um... – Rutherford's big task was always to, to put in a structure and uh, build a program uh, up again here in Vancouver that uh, can see long-term success, success beyond his, his tenure as president of hockey operations, uh, still to be determined uh, if he's been able or will be able to do that. Uh, all right, let's bring in our next guest. He joins us every Wednesday. It is the goalie guru, Kevin Woodley, in Goal Magazine and NHL.com. And uh, Woodley, we've talked a lot about the big picture, but in the uh, last night picture, it was another game that was pretty ugly defensively for the Vancouver Canucks. And maybe even well, by the, some of the numbers you shared on Twitter, even uglier than maybe uh, our trained eye might have thought. Well, I mean... I think anybody's trained eye, and I think that's why <laughs> you go to those numbers. And I know a lot of people... You know, I saw a tweet thread from Thomas Drance earlier today as well that, um, you know, the public numbers skewed it pretty bad defensively for the Canucks as well. And so when I went and checked it out at ClearSight, yeah, like I, I didn't know, like I knew it was bad. The eye test tells you it's bad. But, you know, the reality is you can't objectively measure quality um, accurately just by the eye test, even, even on a game-by-game basis, right? Like we all figured it was bad question was how bad and like over six expected goals against 14 high danger chances for the penguins um all five goals on high danger chances the reality is like to give you some context that is more high danger chances that is more expected goals for the pittsburgh penguins than the carolina hurricanes generated with 67 shots against UC Soros and that much ballyhooed Soros performance against the Nashville Predators early in the week. Like, so, you know, the shot totals maybe weren't as high, 
the, the quantity wasn't as high. I think in that Carolina game, the, the Hurricanes had 40 low percentage shots. The Penguins only had 10. Like it's that, that was a, that was a high quality game. And, you know, it, it's, it's tough to sort of state what that does to your goaltending when, when the Vibrant is that chaotic, um, a lot of it in the first period. So you actually, you know, when you look at that period in particular, like there's quantity as well as quality there. They were certainly on pace for 60 shots after the first. And it's just, you know, what an environment that chaotic and that unpredictable does to your goaltending. Like it's, it's really kind of hard to overstate how challenging that is. And uh, we've seen it have an effect on Spencer as, as the ask is increased here in terms of the numbers of games played. Like I, I think there's a cumulative effect. I think we saw it with Thatcher Demko. I know a lot of people are like, Oh, Thatcher Demko can't wait till he gets back. You know, he, he can help pick this team up. Colin Delia right now, his adjusted numbers behind this team, if you put them over the course of a whole season, like adjusted save percentage, is the best in the NHL. The best in the entire freaking league of anybody who's had more than one start. And people are ready to throw him out with the bathwater after the Winnipeg game. Like, you just can't sustain the level of goaltending required to have success behind Mm -hmm. this team. It's just too big an ask. And I think if you're expecting Demko to come back and deliver that, like that's too big an ask. So uh, I think really the environment defensively has just been sort of laid to bear. And so the other numbers, I like dead last in the NHL and five on five expected goals against off the rush. And they're 28th in terms of what they're generating. So it's not even Mm -hmm. like they're trading chances and having success at the other end because of it. They're actually outscoring their expected metrics because of finishing skill and talent offensively. They're not actually generating a ton off the rush either. It's it's kind of staggering, actually, when you see those numbers. It really is. I mean, we've been talking about it throughout the season, and every time we talk about it, we're still bewildered by how bad it is environmentally in front of these goaltenders and just and it's defensively in general. Well, and, and that, you know what, and we don't need to get into the head coach and stuff, but you start looking at a team, you and, and the trend is just getting worse. Like, it's, it's it's pretty impressive how bad it's getting. But I did want to ask you about Colin Delia, though, because, and I'm not trying to overstate anybody's potential here, because from my untrained eye, I don't know if any either one of these guys is more than a backup, and that's honestly great from where they've come. But am I wrong in, in feeling like when I watch Colin Delia that he, he has more upside than Spencer Martin just because of some of the traits he has, like how powerful he is, how explosive he is, and how athletic he is. And yeah, a lot of stuff he has to clean up, but I see a lot of stuff there that is pretty tangible. And as you mentioned, his, his numbers and his performance outside of the Winnipeg game have been really good. Well, and, hey, but like, listen, like, when I talk about where his numbers are and his adjusted numbers, even after the Winnipeg game, are still the best in the NHL amongst anybody who started more than a game. Um, you'll remember that Spencer Martin and his small sample at the end of last season posted the same numbers. Yes. And so I would have pointed to things like, yeah, you're right, he's not as big in the net as Colin is. Uh, he may not have the same sort of horsepower in terms of moving around the ice as Colin does. But Spencer holds edges from a from from a low wide stance as well, or like they each have different skill sets. Mm-hmm. And when I watch him do that, and the way he recovers from his knees, like there are things he does better as well. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, I was a little surprised, actually, to be perfectly honest, um, that that it wasn't Colin last night. But I thought that Spencer's performance in that game, especially in the first period, um, showed that it was a smart decision. Like clearly, they asked 
a lot, perhaps too much of him when Demko first got injured. And I think part of that was the fact that Collins game. And if you remember that appearance against the Montreal Canadiens where he won in relief um, and, and posted good numbers, but there was a lack of control in his game um, in that first appearance that I think has improved significantly since through his work on a daily basis with Ian Clark. Like he is, he's talked about it himself in terms of having a game plan and, and actually sticking to it um, and not using all that power that he has to not, not just inefficiently, but ineffectively in terms of, you know, chasing plays and getting himself scrambling. He's really sort of established a nice sort of home base to his game and he stays within that more regularly. So I wouldn't be surprised if you start to see more starts for him because he has been really good. And I think you'll get more to Spencer when you put him back into a role that he's more comfortable with, um, much like last night. Like, again, like at the end of the day, his numbers on the season got better after giving up five, at least in terms of adjusted, because that was such a tough uh, environment. So uh, in terms of long-term, you know, I think it's really easy, much like a lot of us, including myself, were doing after Spencer's uh, season at the end of last year, like projecting that all those things maybe wouldn't continue at the level that he played last year. Again, because his numbers were right where Collins are right now, even a little better uh, at the end of last season. Uh, the hardest thing is to do it over and over again and to do it consistently. So as promising as some of the changes seem to be in Collins' game, I think you know, it would be foolish to say, yeah, he's going to be a plus 3.2% on the save percentage guy for the rest of his career. Like that's, again, that's not realistic because the guys that do that win Vesna trophies and, and frankly at that number heart trophies. So, yeah. um, but there, you're right. There are tools there. There are signs there at the very least. I, I still think both of these guys, Spencer included are guys that can give you really good one B minutes. If you can get a Thatcher Demko back up and running and into a number one role. Um, obviously it doesn't matter. I don't think this year, but moving forward beyond this year, cause don't forget, uh, Spencer still signed to a really team friendly ticket for next season as well. Uh, Kevin Woodley, our guest, uh, I know we've talked about block shots, uh, with this team in the past. Uh, Bruce Boudreaux talked a lot about, uh, his team blocking shots, but it's not just about, uh, as you pointed out on Twitter, sometimes it's not even just about, you know, getting in front and blocking the shot. It's, you know, how they go about even getting in the way of some of these things and more often than not, maybe getting away, getting in the way of their goaltenders. And then there's, you know, Oliver Ekman Larson yesterday, who's just uh, flamingoing at the puck. So, you know, none of, none of that is good when it comes to blocking shots with this team. Well, I think this is a part of their penalty kill problems. And I don't think this is just this year. I think this goes back to last year as well. Guys that were in lanes, but not in the right lane, taking away their goaltender's eyes. But, you know, we talked a lot about screens and managing screens and how that's not just a goaltender's job. It's a system thing where goalies got short side. If the, if, if the screen is in the middle and that tends to be where more opponent screens go, they kind of try and hang to the middle, they, they will move. They'll flash screen you, try and pull you to one side on purpose. But for the most part, unless you get pulled too far, goalie wants short side because that's the quickest path to the net for the puck. And the defensemen or forwards are responsible for the middle lane because that's where there's likely to be more traffic and you have more time as a goalie to sort of move behind that screen and get from one side to the other on a middle lane shot. But far too often, and this is not just picking on, on the play last night. Cause I thought Myers went up to the top and got in the way. Like, like I'd be willing to bet if you ask Spencer Martin, he doesn't see that release. And for goalies, it's all about finding a way to see the release. 
And that's that's not about the release is not about OEL spinning out of the way of that shot. The release is about um, Tyler Myers again being in a lane, taking away his goalie's eyes, but not actually getting in the way of the puck. And I think that there are too many defensemen on this team. And again, I said this last season, and I think it played a role in the penalty kill. Because to be honest. Mm-hmm the underlying numbers on the PK aren't as bad. As horrific as they are 5-on-5 five five and off the rush, when I look at the PK over the last two seasons, they're not good, don't get me wrong, but they're not the historically bad results we've seen. And I think one of the things that is a little hard to measure, and, and I don't think analytics will ever measure it, ClearSight does look at screens, including defensive screens or own screens. Um, but what you're never going to measure is what the system says. Like, is the guy in the right lane? Is he where he's supposed to be? Can the goalie trust that? And this is, to me, one of the biggest sort of glaring weaknesses of this club defensively. And there's a lot of them. But it's just the way when it is in zone, their tendency to get in the lanes, take away goalies' eyes, and not block shots. Or, or as like I said, just not even be in the right lane or be there and not actually get in the way. And so it's... Um, listen, I think some of that's in, in the DNA. Like, I just don't know that they have a bunch of defensemen where they see that as, I don't say their job, but as, as the role they play, as the type of player they are. And, um, you know, I think Oliver gets picked on a lot. That's not the type of defenseman he was in Arizona. It's not the type of defenseman Jim Benning talked about when he acquired him. He talked about the Vesna Trophy, Oliver ekman Larson, the guy who used to compete, you know, for that award. And, and as he ages and as the speed becomes an issue, like, can you transition into an Alex Edler type? And I'm just not mm-hmm. sure that that's part of the profile of, of Oliver ekman Larson. And, you know, asking, asking him to change his game to that extreme, like that's a big ask. But when you don't have anybody else that performs those roles or, or plays it that way, or not enough guys that do, um, it's something that gets, that gets a little bit exposed and I almost hate to make him the poster child for it. Um, because I think if they had other guys that did it, we wouldn't notice it nearly as much. Yeah, I think I mean that's certainly the case. And we listen, we, we can spend so much time on the Canucks and we have and about this environmentally and, and where Oh, can we are... stop beating this dead horse and go somewhere else? Yes, yes, that's exactly what I was about to do. And and I'm actually really excited about then these next couple of topics we're gonna to talk to you about before before we get out here. And let's just get to the first one because we're nearing the mid season point. Like who who are some legitimate Vesna candidates this year and and could some names be different than the years past? Well, Linus Allmark, obviously, I mean, with the record, what is he, like 21-1? and one? It's absurd. One regulation um, loss so far in 26 yeah, that's, games that's, played. That's <laughs> banana land stuff, right? Like, that's crazy. And yet, I don't know how many people I've talked to or looked at midseason awards, and the caveat that is thrown out there constantly is, yeah, but he plays for the Boston Bruins, who have, what, like four regulation losses on the season, right? Like, um, And I get that. Uh, his expected save percentage it's high. It's, it's, it's 900 right now, which if you look around the league, um, you know, there's, there, there's only like 10 goalies that have a higher expected save percentage than Linus Allmark. So it's a favorable environment for goaltenders, no question. But he's outperforming it by a significant margin. As a matter of fact, when I talk about Colin Delia being at the top of the league um, at 3.2%, Allmark is next at 2.6. So this is not... Yes, it's easier to play goal in Boston, and that, does, that, that includes your defensive environment. It doesn't even take into account the fact that you know you have the run support he has, 
which makes it less stressful mentally to play goal for the Boston Bruins. So I'm not discounting that he has it easier than some other guys. But relative to that environment, he's outperforming it by a wider margin than any other goalie in the NHL that's a starter. Again, not named Colin Delia. Like, that's how good he's been. And when you look at the raw numbers, when we're talking about a 938, like, anytime you get into the 940s, and I think we said this last year, like, Shishterkin, if he stayed above 940 last year, I think he's got a legit shot at the, at, at the heart as well as the Vesna. So, Allmark is having that kind of season. It's going to be really hard to unseat him. And yet, because they're determined not to overplay him, wisely so, there are other guys who have a chance to pass him on a cumulative basis when I look at goals saved above expected. As a matter of fact, UC Saros, with his last two starts, has. He's at 18 for the year, and Allmark's at 16.75. So, you know, if Saros gets on a second-half heater, and there's been signs of it these last couple of games, you couple that with how much bigger his workload is, for the Nashville Predators, like in terms of lifting a team that, you know, frankly might be the Vancouver Canucks, if not for him, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the Canucks with Demko and they've got even less offensive upside. Um, Then he could challenge for that beyond that Sorokin, Ottinger, Vasilevsky, like those are the guys, Shesterkin again, uh, the guys that are in that mix. One guy who I think will get some buzz on the Vezina sort of front will be, um, Connor Hellebuck. Mm-hmm. But again, we talk about high expected save percentages. Like Rick Bonus has Rick Bonus to the Winnipeg Jets. <laughs> Connor Hellebuck has a 904 expected save percentage. His adjusted numbers are actually 17th in the league. His raw save percentage is second only to Allmark. But his adjusted numbers drop. That environment has become very goalie friendly in Winnipeg. And so, you know, I think anybody that looks at those numbers, I don't want to say takes him out of the equation because he's been very good. Again, outplayed a, a good environment, but not the, to the degree of Allmark, not to the degree of Saros or Sorokin or Shesterkin, you know, or even Jake Ottinger. When I think about you know what you just said about bonus, you know that Winnipeg team was uh, not good defensively the last couple of years under Paul Maurice. So maybe it gives some credence to what uh, Rutherford and Alvin said about uh, bringing structure into Vancouver. Um, but that's another topic for another day. Uh, the World Juniors just wrapped up, and uh, we saw Canada pull it together goaltending-wise. But once again, you know, the, the conversation uh, popped up, Woodley, of how come Canada isn't developing goalies the way they used to? Uh, what's your theory on that? Well, I mean, I don't know if it's entirely true, to be honest with you. Like, okay. you know, look at opportunities to play in various leagues, like – I know the numbers have come down at the NHL level compared to other countries. And I think there's an argument to be made to some degree that other countries uh, have just improved. Um, and, but, but I guess even in that remark, has Canada fallen behind relative to what they're doing? And, you know, like, like I, I see both sides of it. I still think there's tons of opportunities there uh, at lots of different levels. Obviously the homegrown leagues at junior are, skew towards Canadians as, as the homegrown talent anyways, but it's not like the door's closed to Europeans anymore. They have opportunities here as well. Um, I, I think the NCAA as well. Like, so I don't know if it's the, as big a problem as some people make it out to be at times. And I think we saw that in the world juniors, right? Like the, the stink really shouldn't have been over um, Canadian goaltending on a whole. It should have been over hockey Canada's decision-making when it comes to picking goaltenders or selecting a starter in that case for the world juniors. Um, you know, they, they, they started with a guy who was running an eight sixty five in the OHL 
And I think you can fairly ask questions about why. And I do think having been, and I got to be careful here, but I've been a part of those conversations and a part of that process at past world juniors. And frankly, a part of arguments with people that had no intention of bringing goaltenders to the team camps. And in some cases didn't even bring goaltenders to development camps that ended up after some of the arguments getting a chance and winning gold medals for this country. So I think selecting goaltenders and picking the right one uh, has at times been a problem for Hockey Canada that should be separated from any development issues. And I think Thomas Millich showed you um, that, that there are still really good goaltenders in this country. So that's one part of it. I will say, however, that where other countries have developed national development models and programs, we have fallen behind significantly in that respect. Um, we have one in Canada. Uh, good luck getting access to it. Good luck finding a seminar to take our goalie coaching certification program. It's hit or miss, hard to find. As a matter of fact, I know goalies and goalie parents and young goalie coaches that are taking the American version of the goalie coaching certification program because it's so much easier to access. And that's a problem. In Sweden, um, their program for goalies is not about building better goalies per se. They build better goalie coaches. Their program is all about certifying right down to the grassroots so that, you know, little Johnny and little Susie at seven, eight years old that are trying goalies for the first time actually have someone on the ice, what, even if it's a volunteer parent, that has some level of certification to get them off on the right foot in terms of the teaching. We don't really have that here. So, yeah, we have fallen behind in some ways from a national development program uh, and model for goalie coaches, and I think that's why you see some of these other, t- other countries increase their footprint on the international side in terms of both success at some of these international tournaments, but more goalies playing at the National Hockey League level. And yet we see Russia taking off. And what's the one thing we hear the most about the rise of Russian goaltending? They don't overteach them at a young age. Mm. They let them just go out and play and they teach them skills and skating and, and foundational stuff. They don't over technique it as in Clark would say, they don't over institutionalize goalie coaching at a young age. So, um, you know, as, as I say, our certification program has, is, is behind other countries. There's also an argument to be made that too much certification at too young an age is problematic. So, uh, at the end of the day, we're still producing a lot of top-level elite goaltenders. Are we ever getting back to the day uh, where you know it all came from Quebec because the goalie coaching there was so much further ahead than the rest of the world and they weren't sharing and everybody that came out of there sort of had access, basically had a head start because of the technical foundation they built? I don't think we'll ever get back to that. Uh, I do think there are steps Canada could take as a country. And, and interestingly enough, at various times, they've started them and then stopped them. Um, and, and it would be great to see better organization on that front. But I don't think the problem is quite as, as dr- dramatic and drastic as some people made out early in the World Juniors. Woodley, you're the best. Thanks for this. Thanks, guys. Uh, there's Kevin Woodley, an endless amount of information. Uh, from Woodley, of course. Fantastic as always. Uh, Dan Richo, Satyar Shaw. It's an overrated, underrated Wednesday. That's next on Canuck Central.